You're listening to a sermon from River City Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. For more gospel-centered resources and to learn about our church, visit www.rivercitympls.com. 24 through 27. It's on page 882 of the Pew Bible. So if you have one of those hardback black Bibles, if you're using that today, page 882. If you don't own a Bible, that is our gift to you. So feel free to take that with you today and use that. But otherwise, Luke chapter 22, verses 24 to 26. And I want to begin with a question today. And this isn't like a gotcha question, so it's okay if you don't know the answer. But what is something that was part of creation before the fall? It is also going to be part of our eternal future in our resurrected bodies in the future. uh, And it has been part of humanity everywhere in between. Fruit. Fruit, like the raisins and the cookies. <laughs> what did I hear? God. God, yeah, that's good. What's that? A garden. Actually, that is the closest answer to what I was looking for. A garden. Work. <clears throat> they had to work and keep the garden. Right? I love that. Linda says that's not work. Originally, God didn't design it like it was experienced now. So, yeah, that's, that's good. We're already starting. So yeah, work has been with us from the original creation and will be with us, it says in, the song, or in Isaiah, in our eternal future. It was part of God's design. Adam and Eve were made to have dominion over God's creation and he put them in the garden to work it and keep it, it tells us in Genesis. And, then, or, and when the Bible then gives us a picture of our eternal future, Work is part of it, and it is a redeemed work, no longer in vain, no longer plagued by toil and brokenness, work that is fulfilling and it is joyful. Work started out good and beautiful. We should remember that, and it will be good and beautiful forever. Our work as God's kingdom people is to view our work in light of God's created design, and not let the brokenness and the fall define it for us. Our sermon today is on work. And we are in a series called Tired of Being Tired, Embracing the Rhythms of Jesus in an Age of Distraction. And we live in a world that is filled with tired and weary people. And the secular vision of a grand utopia, it is failing around us. People report being more tired than they've ever been, more lonely than they've ever been, less happy than they've ever been, And we believe that the ways of Jesus give us an answer. They give us hope in this age of distraction. And so last fall, we began talking about Jesus's personal rhythms, Bible reading and fasting and prayer and Sabbath. Beginning in January, we've started to look at his public and relational rhythms, hospitality, relational witness, last week, public teaching. And today we're going to talk about work. And I need to confess as your pastor that I I feel convicted that I have not discipled you well enough in this area. As I've been preparing for this sermon, as I've been thinking about this over the past several months, um, I've been feeling convicted. For so many people, they do not see how their faith and their work are related to one another. The gap between Sunday gatherings and Monday work is too large. And I want to help close that gap. Now, we cannot possibly cover everything about work right now, but it's important that we start. And so our text today in Luke 22, verses 24 through 27, is going to help us. Now, I'm not going to exegete the entire thing, but I want to extract a principle from the text 
that should inform the way we view our work as God's kingdom people. So if you have your Bibles open to Luke chapter 22, verses 24 through 27, I'll read it and you can follow along. Again, that's page 882 in those hardback black Bibles. It says this, A dispute also arose among them as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. And he said to them, The kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those in authority over them are called benefactors. But not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest, and the leader as one who serves. For who is greater, one who reclines at table or one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at table? But I am among you as the one who serves. This is the word of the Lord. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the gift it is to us as your people. Would you help us to understand your vision for work right now? God, we know that grass withers and flowers fade, but your word will last forever. And so by the power of your spirit, would you open our eyes? Would you help us to see the wondrous things that are found here in your word? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Henry Ironside was a pastor in the middle of the 20th century for about 20 years in Chicago. And he tells a story when he was a boy of needing to help his widowed mother earn some income to help provide for their family. And so he found a job with a Scottish shoemaker who preferred to be called a cobbler named Dan McKay. And I will say cobbler's got to be like one of the best words for any profession. Ironside's job was to pound out leather. Okay, so the soles of shoes would be cut to shape and put in water and soaked. And then he would take them out and he'd have a flat iron put on his legs and he would pound out the leather until it was dry before it was attached to the shoes. This was a tiring and wearisome job for him. He would go home exhausted. And to make it worse, down the road was another cobbler who was a crooked man. He told lewd jokes to all the boys in, t- in the neighborhood, and, but he always seemed to thrive in his work. And so one day Ironside slipped into the other cobbler's shop and wanted to see what was happening. And he saw him take the soles straight from the water, attach them right to the shoe, sopping wet, water splashing everywhere with each nail that was pounded in. And so he asked this other cobbler, he said, is it just as good this way? The cobbler gave him this conniving look back and said to him, they come back all the quicker this way indicating that no, it's not just as good, and in fact, he's intentionally making a worse product so people will buy more of them. And Ironside, though, thought maybe this is some wisdom I should bring back to my other boss. So he goes and tells Dan McKay, and he suggested that he was wasting time pounding out all this leather each day. And this old and wise cobbler patiently and slowly stopped his work, and he opened his Bible, and he read from Colossians, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. And he went on to tell him, he said, Henry, I don't cobble shoes for the little money that I earn. I do it for the glory of God. And I expect to see every shoe I have ever repaired in one big pile at the judgment seat of Christ. And I want, or I do not want the Lord to say to me in that day, this was a poor job. I want him to say, well done, good and faithful servant. He explained that just as some were called to preach, he was called to fix shoes and that the quality of his work was a testimony about the God that he worshipped. Now we have two cobblers, same basic job, 
The typical customer wouldn't know any difference between them, but they did it with very different visions of what their work was for. One of them made and repaired shoes for the good of their customers, earning less money in order to provide a more quality product, and he did so because he believed that his faith in God should inform the way that he went about his work. The other one repaired shoes for their own good, earning more money because he provided a poor quality product. And in this way, we can think about our work primarily as what we give or what we get. Our work will either be about our contribution to the common good or it will be a way of consuming from the common good. And this is the principle that we see Jesus communicating in our passage. So let's look at the text a little bit. In verse 24, it says that a dispute arose among them, being the disciples. They're arguing over which one of them is the greatest. And just having the argument itself would be bad enough for them. But the context of when it's happening makes it all the worse. At this point in time, they are just days from Jesus dying. They had just celebrated the Passover meal and the Lord's Supper. And Jesus had told them that one of them was going to betray him. And so they were arguing about who that person was, who was going to betray Jesus. And then somehow that shifted into an argument here about who was the greatest. And can you just imagine the scene and just how disrespectful this would be to Jesus? He's saying, hey, I'm, I'm about to die and one of you is going to betray me. And rather than examine their own hearts or express sympathy for what Jesus is about to endure, they argue with one another about who's the worst disciple. And then they argue with one another about who's the greatest disciple. And I just wonder for them, in, in all the anxiety of what's happening, I'm sure they felt a little bit of the, the anxiety, the worry that their master, their teacher is about to die. And so they begin to argue. The worst of them starts to come out. And isn't that so often the case? Under pressure, our true desires and our motivations rise to the surface. And Jesus shows remarkable patience and composure in response to their immaturity. And he corrects them gently by comparing them with the leaders of the Gentiles. And he explains that they exercise their authority in oppressive and domineering ways. And some translations use this phrase, they lord it over them. And this is a reference to the tendency in humans to try and gain power. This is so kind of fundamental in us since the fall to try and gain power. And once power is achieved to use that power to get others to conform to our interests, this is so often the accepted practice among so many people in positions of power. And this gentle comparison that Jesus makes is meant to chastise the disciples and help them to see that they need to stop thinking this way. This is not the way of God's kingdom. In verse 26, then Jesus explains the principle of serving others rather than being served. He says, the greatest among you must become like the youngest and the leader like the one who serves. And then in verse 27, he uses uh, table practices as an illustration. Isn't the one who reclines at the table considered greater than the servant, Jesus asks. But Jesus is saying, I'm here as a servant, and he is the greatest among them. And Jesus is flipping this entire paradigm upside down. Greatness is not in being served, but in serving others. As it applies to our work then, what we see in this passage is Jesus is using the vocation of Gentile leaders as the context for his illustration. This is supposed to be their job. They're kings, they're leaders. They're meant to do a certain thing in society and they're using that task, that vocation that God has given them to oppress and to domineer. 
They had an option. Would they use it to, for the good of others or would they use it for their own good? And from this passage, here is the principle that we're going to extract as it relates to our work. Our work is meant to be about what we give and not what we get. It is about our contribution to the common good, not our consumption of it. And that simple shift, it might seem simple and maybe even just too small to even talk about, but it will have a massive impact on the way that you go about your work, the way you think about it. It will begin to lead you to ask questions about how can I serve the good of others? How does my work contribute to the common good? You'll be more cautious about feeling entitled in your own work or complaining about what you're not getting because you're focused instead on what you have to give. Now, I want to take this principle and apply it to our work in some more ways today. But first, I want to help us get a little bit bigger picture, a more kind of a more biblical understanding of work in general, because we do need a paradigm shift. And if we're going to be having this life-giving rhythm of work in our lives, then we need to embrace the rhythm of Jesus and how he thought about work and how the Bible teaches us about work. We need to do it in a way that is aligned with the biblical vision. And as I said earlier, I have felt convicted about not equipping you well enough to have a framework in mind. This is something I have felt increasingly more over the past several months, because here's the reality. The average person will spend about 90,000 hours in their primary vocation and work throughout their lifetime. That's a lot of time. It is pastoral malpractice for me to ignore this massive reality in all of your lives and not equip you for it. And here is how Tom Nelson defines work. He's a pastor and an author who's thought deeply about many of these things. He defines it in this way, and I find this to be very helpful. He says, our work, whatever it is, whether we are paid for it or not, is our specific human contribution to God's ongoing creation and to the common good. Whether we're paid for it or not, how we contribute, the vocation we're called to, the way that we um, give to the common good, contributing to God's creation, this is work. And it happens in many different ways. For example, uh, my wife Megan is trained as a pharmacist and she works in the medical profession at times, but most of her time is spent educating our kids at home. Just because she gets paid for one of them and not for the other one doesn't mean that one of them is work and the other one is not. In fact, the one she doesn't get paid for is often far more difficult than the one she does get paid for. Our work and our contribution to God's ongoing creation and to the common good was given to us from the beginning. This this is part of the way God created us. The picture that the Bible gives of work is something that is good and beautiful. It was given to Adam and Eve at creation. It will be with us in the new creation after Christ returns. And as people of God's kingdom, it is important for us to remember that our work was created for us as good and beautiful. Because even though it's been broken by the fall, the brokenness doesn't define it for us. The reality is that when sin and rebellion entered the world through Adam and Eve, work was impacted. It was. It it has become toilsome, and we experience that on a daily basis. But that was not the original design. And the selfishness of the Gentile kings that Jesus talks about in Luke 22, this is a result of the fall. Sin has made us selfish. And because of the fall, people began to approach work as a way of getting what they want, controlling other people, 
consuming God's creation. And Jesus has come to redeem even this part of creation so that his followers could once again see their work as contribution and not consumption, asking what we can give, not what we can get. And even Jesus, we see in his life, he worked. He had work to do. He was born as the son of a carpenter. He took on that work as a young adult. He knew what it was like to have his body ache at the end of a hard day of work, the disappointment of a lost sale, the honor of serving a customer. And his craft contributed to his community, to the needs of his family. But carpentry would not be his primary work in life. He came to do the will of his father which meant that he came to preach the good news of the kingdom. He came to heal the brokenhearted and release captives from their bondage. He came to establish his authority on earth and to defeat Satan, sin, and death. He came to die and to rise again. And in a similar passage, the one that we read from Luke 22, Jesus ends the teaching with his disciples by saying that he did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus had work to do, and he did it faithfully. And one of the ways that Jesus is redeeming our work is by reminding us that the work that God has given us to do is not about what we get from others, but about what we will give to others. Our work is given to us so we can contribute to God's creation and the common good. And now with that framework in our minds, let's talk about our work today. What does all of this mean for people who want to follow Jesus in the 21st century? So I have three applications for you. I'm sure there are many more applications we could make, but I have three. The first is to repent from using your work to get rather than give. And here, we we need to be honest with ourselves. This tendency is in all of us. The sin of the Gentile kings to lord their position over others, to use their work to consume rather than contribute, to get rather than to give. That's in all of us. We will all be tempted to work for selfish reasons. And I have two ways that this can show up. It shows up in many ways. I have two for you, competition and complaining. And so the first is competition. One way you can kind of ask yourself, am I, am I thinking about my work in this way? Is to ask if you see your workers as competition or as partners? Are they getting in the way of your next promotion? Can you celebrate when they succeed? Or do you find yourself getting jealous? Can you celebrate that their shared work is good for your whole team and the work you're doing together? When you see your work as a way of just getting the next raise or the next recognition or more power and influence that comes with the next promotion, When we operate in work that way, then God calls us to repent. And you might say, well, that's just the way that my workplace is. And that might be true, but that is not the way it is with Jesus. And we have to ask ourselves, am I going to let the culture of my workplace define the way that I work? Or am I going to let the way of God's kingdom define the way that I work? The second way this will show up, or a second way, is complaining. Another way that you can see if work is for you about getting something instead of giving is just ask, how often do I complain? Now, complaining is what we do when something, or when we don't like the way that something is. And we can acknowledge sometimes we need to voice that. But if complaining becomes the norm, it often points to a deeper motivation. It can often reveal that we want our work to serve us. We want to get something. 
And when we're not getting what we want, then we will complain. And complaining keeps us from contributing because we are consumed by what we want and what we need. Whether it's competition or it's complaining, I want you to ask yourself whether you see your work as a means of giving or getting. And if you are primarily focused on what you get, then let the conviction of God's Spirit come. Don't fight it. Let it come. Repent. And then trust that God brings fresh forgiveness. He will help you to see how you can start to view your work as a means of contributing to God's creation and to the common good. And remember that you have all you could ever need in Jesus. Working hard will not earn you God's love. We get to work hard because God has loved us. You don't need to prove yourself. To your, you don't need to prove yourself to yourself or to anyone else. You don't need to prove that you're worthy of love and respect. Your work does not need to earn those things. Some of you are not using your work to get material things that you can consume, but you find yourself using your work to give you identity and value. And you find yourself worshiping your work and want it to give you something that it cannot give. Jesus did all that we need on the cross. He came and he served you by becoming a ransom for your life. And he freed you by his sacrificial death so that you can be free to serve others. And so as you repent, remember that you have all the forgiveness you'll need in Christ. And his sacrifice, his own sacrifice, has freed you to be a servant. Now, second application. Ask yourself how your work contributes to the common good. And for some, this will be really simple. Others of you, this will be complicated, but this is a question that we need to ask ourselves. Because if we cannot see how we contribute, then we will find ourselves feeling untethered and aimless, will be prone then to consume. And over time, it will cultivate something in our heart. See, we are shaped in life by the things that we do and the practices that we keep. Now, your heart does not change overnight. It takes time. But if you begin to see how you contribute, if you remind yourself of how you help human flourishing, then you can start to practice contribution as a discipline. And work as contribution was woven into us from creation. The way that we see our work will shape us as people. And some of you will have an easy time seeing the way this works. If you're a teacher, for example, you can see the way that your investment into the lives of young image bearers of God will have an impact on humanity. But in our complex society, the reality is that many jobs are several steps removed from the people that they serve. And we cannot, as people, then underestimate the impact on millions of people who then struggle to see their work as purposeful and meaningful for humanity. For example, if you work in an area, or if you work in the area of computer programming for a large textiles company, you might not think that your work contributes. You might have a hard time seeing how it does, especially if you are cynical by nature. But if you do not stop to think about why your work matters and how it contributes, then it will begin to develop a consumption mentality in you. Or others, if you're buried five or six steps deep in a complex organization, it is worth your time to stop and ask, how does my work contribute? Why does it matter? Not because it doesn't, but because if you don't think about things, those sorts of things, you will not see how it does and you will struggle to cultivate a mentality of contribution over consumption. And if you're still skeptical, you're not alone. I read a story this week about a woman named Vicky. 
Her pastor had started to talk about these sorts of things, about work and faith integration and our contribution to the common good, and she was quite cynical about it all, not believing that her work in the ER, taking people's insurance, mattered. And she would think to herself, this pastor, he doesn't know what he's talking about. He doesn't really know who I am or what I do. He doesn't know that I'm just a paper pusher. And over time, she began to see things differently. She started to see these things in light of her faith. And she would later say, and this is a quote from her, God was using me to bring care to people during one of their most difficult and stressful situations. And if you've ever been to the ER, you know what she's talking about. Right? You don't go to the ER for no reason. Typically, anxieties are high. It's stressful. You're worried. And then insurance itself is another stressful thing. The person taking your insurance can either make your stress worse or they can be the smile of God to you and help to alleviate and soothe your anxious thoughts. If we see our work as consumption, then a paper pusher who just earns a paycheck is all that Vicky is. But if we see our work as contribution, then Vicky becomes a conduit of grace and care to people in their time of need. And whether it is working in government or civic leadership, like the Gentile kings that Jesus is talking about, whether it's going into people's homes to repair plumbing or electrical systems, or whether it's caring for and educating your kids, we need Jesus-loving, Christ-exalting, servant-hearted people in all domains of society. And now our third application. This is a shorter one and probably the most practical. Pursue greatness this week by serving someone else. Jesus says greatness comes from serving. And so ask yourself, how can I serve someone else this week, especially in, in your area of work or vocation? If you are able, maybe you pick up a shift for someone who needs personal time off, or maybe you slow down and take time to encourage someone else at work who's discouraged. Or maybe rather than seeing your workplace as competition, you share something that you've learned that will help a coworker succeed. And if your work is directly with people, then serve them by being patient and kind in your interactions. Ask God for help, especially at the end of a long day, to use your words to bring life and not death. Whether it's the team that you lead, the kids you're educating, the patients that you serve, or the customers that need a kind word. And I'd encourage you right now, if you have a pen and paper and you've been taking notes, write down one way that you can be a servant in your work this week. Make a note in your phone or a reminder for yourself or just make a mental snapshot. Ask God for his help in this. Ask him to help you see how you can be a servant to others and then ask him to help you actually do it. See, our work matters and our faith matters to our work. Today we've talked about the way that faith changes the way that we see our work and in particular, our vision of work going from asking about what we can get to what we can give. Jesus came to serve, not to be served, and he gave his life as a ransom for many. And we will either buy, be like the Gentile kings who use our positions to lord it over others and get something, or we will be like our Savior who came to serve and give his life for the flourishing of others. If your work is your contribution to God's creation and the common good, which we believe that it is, then ask yourself how you can contribute this week rather than consume. Ask yourself how you can give to the glory of God rather than get for the good of yourself. Thank you for listening to this sermon from River City Church. 
If you found this resource helpful, we encourage you to share it with your friends and family. We exist to see weary lives renewed through relationship with Jesus in the Twin Cities and beyond.